Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. Welcome back for part two of our discussion on iodinated intravascular contrast media and acute adverse reactions. We're going to pick up where we left off, uh, discussing some clinical cases with uh, how low, and uh, let's begin with case three. So let's do a third case. Um, here we have an, uh, an oncologist who calls you and is inquiring about you know some premedication in a patient. And you mentioned earlier how you know some patients may require premedication before contrast. And this patient of, of hers had a um, history of moderate uh, allergic type reaction to IV contrast on the previous uh, CT uh, study for uh, you know, tumor assessment. So, so what would you uh, advise uh, to this oncologist? Yes, sure. So uh, you know, this is, again, another uh, very commonly encountered uh, situation in, in all of our reading rooms. Um, and yes, so pre, uh, pre-medication uh, is indicated for patients with a history of a prior uh, allergic type uh, reaction to uh, ionated contrast, especially in the moderate or severe type. But even in the mild category, uh, many centers would provide premedication before uh, injection of contrast. Now, protocols vary widely uh, depending on uh, practice location, and different centers have different protocols. But the overall idea is to reduce the risk of a quote unquote breakthrough reaction or a recurrent. Uh, uh, allergic type reaction. It is important to note uh, while we're talking about this uh, that um, generally speaking, we premedicate for uh, patients with a prior allergic type reaction to ionic contrast uh, or history of uh, severe allergies or asthma. And however, then we typically we do not uh, premedicate typically for uh, reported allergies to shellfish or other iodine-containing products. Uh, the research is pretty clear on that. And, and we also do not premedicate uh, for patients with prior gadolinium or MRI contrast, as there is uh, no good evidence, evidence for cross-reactivity between uh, gadolinium and iodinated contrast reactions. Okay, so um, having said that, um, I'll just talk about the most typical types of, of preparations for premedication. Uh, and again, every center, you know, we should all check our own policies because every uh, medical center has their own policy. But the common ones, let's say for outpatient preps, will typically include two or three doses of 50 milligrams of oral prednisone. That's the most common agent uh, for oral outpatients. Uh, and, and the frequency of that is either 12 to 13 hours before the scan, uh, again at six to seven hours before the scan, and then again at one to two hours uh, prior to the injection. Now, some centers may only do uh, two doses, let's say 12 hours and two hours before. In addition to the, uh, the steroid, um, most centers will, uh, will give a 50 milligram oral Benadryl, uh, um, typically one hour prior to injection. That's for outpatients. Now, in the inpatient or the ER setting, typically uh, most centers will give one to two doses of an IV uh, solumedrol, uh, methylprednisolone, or 
uh, a dose of hydrocortisone, let's say 200 milligrams, uh, plus, again, a 50 milligram uh, dose of Benadryl an hour, an hour before scanning. So that's great. So it sounds like in, in most scenarios, you want to give a steroid and an antihistamine, um, depending on their inpatient or outpatient setting. But what about uh, like yourself? You work in the ED and you have a, a hyperacute setting where um, you want to pre-medicate. Uh, what would you do in that situation? Yeah, so of course you have to assess each patient uh, individually. Uh, and in uh, true hyperacute situations, let's say the patient is a stroke protocol and uh, there is a high suspicion for a stroke or uh, you have high suspicion for aortic dissection, something like that, then in most of those hyperacute situations, we give no premedication at all. Uh, we, we typically make a clinical assessment and if the risk... Uh, usually the risk of an allergic reaction to iodine is outweighed by the risk of uh, delaying a CT scan with contrast. Now, having said that, I will say that the evidence uh, for the efficacy of a quote-unquote rapid preparation uh, uh, pre-medication uh, regimen is, um, is limited. So there is not great evidence for that. And some of that is because we don't have many cases of severe uh, allergic reaction. Great. All right. So um, let's just take one more case. I know we're kind of running a little long on this podcast, but I think this is really important for us to kind of work through um, these clinical scenarios because they're uh, commonly encountered from um, most of the residents and obviously practicing radiologists who monitor um, either CT or, or MRI. So let's, um, let's just uh, end on one, one final case here. Um, in this case, let's, uh, let's go up to the inpatient uh, uh, CT scanner, and um, you're monitoring contrast, and um, the technologist comes to you uh, because the patient that they were just injecting um, is experiencing some pain and swelling uh, in his hand, uh, where the IV injection site was uh, for this patient in a C chest CT angiogram. So you walk in uh, to evaluate your patient, and you see that there's some swelling in the hand, um, and they're experiencing a, a fair bit of pain there. How would you proceed? Okay, great. So uh, again, you know, uh, in the standard way of assessing the patient, I would do the same as we, we just discussed for the contrast reactions. Uh, get some clinical history from whoever you can, including the patient or the nurse or the, or the uh, technologist. Uh, and then evaluate, do a history and physical exam of the patient. But it sounds like here that um, signs and symptoms are, are pain, burning, edema, redness of the hand where we did the uh, injection uh, of intravenous contrast. So it sounds like we're talking about a contrast extravasation, uh, which is essentially uh, intravenous contrast that's meant to uh, uh, go into the, the, the veins uh, and then opacify the venous system, getting into leaking and getting into the soft tissues, of, in this case of the hand. Now, it, uh, the data says that um, the rate uh, for this type of contrast extravasation uh, in cases of CT power-injected uh, examinations is between 0.1% to 1%, so a low rate. Uh, but there are risk factors which uh, we should look out for. So um, the, rate, the, the chances of getting a contrast extravasation are higher if we uh, inject through a distal small vein access site uh, like in this case, for instance, the hand, 
typically, you want to, you would like to, we would prefer to inject through the antecubital fossa, uh, in, especially in the angiogram power injector type of setting. Other risk factors for extravasation are uh, lines, IV lines that have been in place for greater than 24 hours. So maybe there's already some thrombo, some phlebitis or inflammation in the area. Multiple punctures in the same vein. High volumes of uh, contrast being delivered, higher than normal. Um, patients, uh, patient factors such as severe illness or uh, very young or very old or debil debilitated uh, patients. Again, we said that the signs and symptoms are pain, burning, uh, edema, redness. Uh, now, the good news is that, let's say 98%, the vast majority of these uh, types of extravasations resolve on their own with no adverse, permanent adverse effects. The, but if we do have an adverse effect, the most common severe sequela of these reactions is, or of these extravasations is compartment syndrome. Okay, so that's increased pressure uh, within the soft tissue compartment that the contrast has uh, extravasated into. So what would, um, sorry to interrupt you there, but how would, um, how would you mitigate that? So what type of treatment, so you've assessed that in this case, obviously the probably shouldn't have had a you know, power injection down in the hand for the CT angiogram, but it was done and, and there's some extravasation and may, maybe it was done in the proper place in antecubital fossa and we had a you know, a debilitated patient or, you know, a, a, an IV that was maybe a little bit older or what, whatnot. But um, you notice and diagnose that there's an extravasation. What, what can you do, I guess, acutely to try to help, uh, you know, treat and manage this extravasation? And then what do you do, I guess, more in the intermediate term to, um, what do you tell the patient? What do you tell the clinical service? And as far as, um, you know, what needs to be done to help mitigate the, you know, those, those sequelae? Yeah, so sure. So immediately while you're with the patient, uh, certainly do a full evaluation. And what you're really looking for is neurovascular compromise. So make sure that the, you can feel the uh, arterial flow of the hand, if you're talking about the hand or the foot, uh, the distal extremity. Uh, make sure that the patient can move his or her hands or toes uh, so that you're neurovascular intact. And then assess for you know uh, um, sensation and things like that. But then also... Um, the things that you need, you're looking out for are increasing or severe pain in the extremity, skin ulceration. Um, so um, in any case, you need to monitor. So uh, assuming that you're talking about the most common, which is a mild sort of extravasation, you want to monitor the patient after the event uh, for at least half an hour, I would say. You, you would like to elevate the extremity because sometimes that will help resolve uh, the, the extravasated contrast. You can give a cold compress at the time of uh, extra extravasation. And then if you do decide that this is more of a moderate or a severe extravasation, or you're, you have some questionable neurovascular uh, findings, then a plastic surgery consultation would be appropriate to assess for compartment syndrome uh, or tissue necrosis, if that's the case. Uh, and again, I, I I would stress that there really, some people would like to talk about a volume threshold for, uh, let's say, calling plastic surgery. And I would say that there is no threshold. You, you need to base your assessment based on the patient and what the clinical condition is. Yeah. I think a couple of things to add there. That's, that's really great information. Um, I think a few other things um, is one is, is as much as we certainly want to treat, you know, elevation and um, the use of cold compress, I think it also should be noted that 
uh, at least for the literature now, there's little that can be done to mitigate the effect of contrast extra, uh, extravasation after it occurs. But we, we do our best to try to, to try to do that through the cold compress and elevation. Um, I think the other thing is, I know, you know, we certainly don't do it, but I know there's, you know, some uh, discussion about aspiration, you know, it's a, it's a focal fluid and you may be asked by, you know, maybe an internist or hospitalist, but um, any type of attempted aspiration of contrast media um, is really uh, ineffective and should not be done. So um, when you think that there is some compromise, like you said, I think bringing in uh, plastics and having them evaluate, I think is the, the prudent, uh, prudent measure. That's great. Anything else you wanted to add? I think that was a really good discussion about, you know, intravenous contrast and some of the acute reactions. And I think it's important, uh, particularly for the residents, when they first begin to, to monitor contrast and receive, um, you know, questions from clinicians by phone um, or, you know, brought in by the technologist to, to really just try to organize it in your head to think about, you know, what are the potential acute reactions, um, you know, make sure that it's not a severe reaction and then kind of work your way back to, to treat the, the, the symptoms and bring in help when you need to. So. What else do you have? you have something else? Or? No, I would also add that, uh, as always, we're going to um, attach some a couple of additional resources uh, to the show notes for this episode, one of which I would recommend everyone look at, which is the uh, ACR, American College of Radiology Manual on Contrast Media. And they also have a very nice uh, index card type of reference for everyone for some of these things that we've talked about in more detail. And it, it's probably worth looking at that maybe once a year annually, just to refresh your understanding. Yeah, the ACR uh, placard card that they've come out recently, I think is very helpful. We, I know we have them mounted um, on many of our reading rooms. We certainly have one on our outpatient site, even for the magnet. So it's good to, to just kind of uh, look through it um, when you have an opportunity just to make sure you familiarize yourself with the various types of reactions that we reviewed. That's great, How um, It was really wonderful talking to, with you. I hope that was um, of benefit to our, our listeners. And um, we'll have you back soon to go over some more non-interpretive uh, scenarios. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.